Sooner or later, you can bet your life that every Jew in this building is going to say the same thing. He's a little too Jewish for my taste. <laughs> Shalom and welcome to the Two Jewish Radio Show with Rabbi Sam Kohan and Friends, a weekly serving of everything Jewish. Our guest this morning is Jeremy Ben-Ami, the president of J Street, the important pro-Israel organization on the center left of the American Jewish spectrum. We'll also have a visit from our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Please email your comments to us at twojewishradio18 at gmail.com or visit us on the web at twojewishradio.com. The opinions of the host and guests on Two Jewish are their own and not those of the radio station. Two Jewish is paid for by Two Jewish radio programs and podcasts, Tucson, Arizona. And now, here's Rabbi Sam Kohan and Two Jewish. Shalom. I've been attending a rabbinic conference this past week which focused on the question of authority in contemporary religious Judaism. I taught one session there and decided to look at the way that three important theologians considered the question of authority in liberal, that is, non-Orthodox Judaism, and whether they turned out to be correct in their analyses, which were done, oh, I don't know, 50 to 70 years ago. The reason this is an important question might not be so obvious at first. For an Orthodox Jew, authority rests in Jewish law, halacha. And being a good Jew and a good human being depends on following the rules and strictures of that law. And the authority behind that law, in effect, comes from rabbis who have spent many generations interpreting God's will into those laws. In effect, if you are Orthodox, you believe that by following halacha, Jewish law, you accept that it has the authority of God behind it. But... If you are not Orthodox, as I am not, and as about 90% of American Jews are not, and you do not accept that the only path to being good lies in following halacha, you eventually confront a profound problem. Where does authority lie? If you don't believe that Jewish law should have binding authority over your life, what do you think should be the authority you follow in deciding how to be a good Jew? All non-Orthodox streams of Judaism confront this dilemma, and none have exactly covered themselves over in glorious consistency on this question of authority. When you don't believe God gave the whole Talmud to Moses and its many religious laws are divinely authorized, the challenge becomes, who decides what's essential to being Jewish and living a Jewish life? And if someone in a position of authority makes those decisions, are they then understood as obligations by progressive, that is, non-Orthodox Jews? This is more than, who's in charge of the synagogue, or is the kitchen kosher enough, or even, if you don't celebrate Shabbat, are you living a truly Jewish life? Or perhaps, if your mother's not Jewish, but you were raised Jewish and had a bar mitzvah, are you really Jewish? It eventually comes down to just what does your movement or stream or form or practice of Judaism really stand for? This issue is important for conservative Jews who officially have a dedication to Jewish law, but often live lives not particularly bounded by it, and to reform Jews who don't believe halacha, Jewish law, has authority over them, and for reconstructionist and renewal and just plain Jews. It often boils down to, 
What does your own Judaism consist of? And why do you choose to observe it or believe it or understand it the way that you do? Without going too deep into these very tall Jewish weeds, our own Two Jewish Radio Show has been exploring these issues for some 20 years now. What does it mean to be Jewish in 21st century America? What role do Jewish beliefs and ethics play in your life and in how you act? How do you celebrate Jewish holidays? What Jewish traditions do you observe? What is your personal relationship to Israel? What kind of Jewish music, art, literature, and food do you favor? And of course, what is it that makes a joke Jewish? I realize these questions may not seem like they are about authority at all, because in an open society like ours, recognizing that religion has authority over our conduct or beliefs is a bit of a remote idea. But the truth is, we are influenced by many varied areas of belief and practice, including, for Jews and people in Jewish families, these very questions and issues of authority. So, on this January morning, just what is it that tells you to do good deeds and to fulfill mitzvot? How do you decide just how you're going to experience the Sabbath or the varied holidays on the calendar? How do you choose to raise your children or influence your grandchildren or advance your own Jewish knowledge? And why do you make those choices? Of course, in Judaism, it's the doing that matters most, not the thinking about why we do or don't do things. Still, it's valuable to know what it is that shapes our religious identity and actions, and to know that we are acting out of knowledge, choice, and commitment. Well, now, to play us in this morning, here's a Lechadodi, the song of welcome for the Shabbat from Itzik Eshel, using melodies from the Bukharan Jewish community.
That was L'Chad Odi by Itzik Eshel in the Bukharan Jewish tradition for Shabbat this coming Friday night. Why not attend Congregation Beit Simcha and share in the joy of the Sabbath this coming week? Our guest this morning is Jeremy Ben-Ami, president of J Street, the fast-growing and influential Jewish organization, discussing the new Israeli government, the relationship of American Jews to Israel, and what it all means right now. Find out when we come back in a few moments here on Too Jewish. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. We are delighted to welcome the two Jewish or good friend. Jeremy Ben-Ami is the extraordinary director of J Street, the organization that has... I think rocketed to importance in the Jewish world over the last, um, well, several, more than several years. Um, good morning and welcome back to Two Jewish. Good morning. Thank you so much. It's nice to be back. So uh, let's talk about the kind of the elephant in the room, the new government in Israel. Um, there have been a lot of responses to a very conservative government coming in, Bibi Netanyahu is back yet again, and there have been voices raised in the Jewish world protesting the government before it even took office. Um, where does J Street stand on this? Well, I think protesting the new government, in, in a sense, may be uh, the wrong wording to use. I think what many of us are making clear is that the people who have been assembled by the new prime minister uh, have a very clear track record, and they have... Uh, established what they do, what they stand for, uh, and it is that with which groups like J Street have an argument. Uh, these are folks with a track record of incitement to terror. They, in some cases, they've been convicted of that. Uh, they're people who have clearly racist uh, pasts and have made clear their views about Arabs and other groups, uh, LGBT, uh, the role of women in society. Uh, and so I think that it is uh, not just that we're protesting the government before it takes office, it's that we are making clear a very fundamental difference in uh, ideology, philosophy, politics, uh, with the people who are about to take the reins of, of government in the state of Israel. It, it seems to me that there's um, an advantage to not speaking out too quickly, even though we know the past of some of these ministers. Um, people that come into office under Netanyahu somehow always end up being co-opted by Netanyahu. Do we think that he has now moved in that direction as prime minister, having put together this very far-right coalition? I, I understand the philosophy of not moving too fast and giving people a moment to... to you know, show who they are and what they are. But, you know, it's, it's been only 72 hours, and I already probably couldn't summarize all the things that they've done, uh, you know, in the course of our 18 minutes together. Right. Uh, you know, their, their first morning, 6 a.m., uh, the Minister of Public Security, Itamar Ben-Gvir, 
uh, chooses to go up to the Temple Mount, uh, Temple Mount right. uh, you know, which is a deliberately provocative action just to, you know, establish that that's how they're going to act. The uh, uh, new justice minister, Yariv Levine, on the very first day un- unveils a package of constitutional, let's say they don't have a constitution, but uh, legal changes about how the court operates, how judges are appointed. Uh, evacuation orders are rescinded for illegal outposts under Israeli law. Uh, illegal, not uh, that the international community considers illegal, but a place like Chomesh, uh, which the Supreme Court has made clear in Israel is illegal, built on private Palestinian land. The uh, government says uh, they're not going to obey that order. Uh, you know, I could go on and on and on. So we don't have to wait because we know who these people are. We know what their agenda is. We know what they want to do. And it's really important for those of us who care about Israel, about the Israel we grew up with, uh, the Israeli, the Israel we believe in, uh, the Israeli, the Israel that its founders believed in. Uh, we have to speak up and alert people to what is happening, uh, and not after the barn door is wide open and all the animals are gone. Say, oh well, I guess we should have done something about the security of our barn. Uh, you know, it is now that we need to be speaking out and drawing very clear lines. We will talk much more with Jeremy Benami about J Street and, of course, about Israel when we come back in a moment here on Two Jewish. Congregation Beit Simcha, the House of Joy, a wonderful Jewish synagogue in northwest Tucson in the Catalina Foothills, celebrates a fabulous array of services, classes, and events this winter. Established by passionate, caring congregants and me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, Beit Simcha is a vibrant, vital community that strives every day to serve God with joy. Progressive congregation in northwest Tucson and the foothills, Beit Simcha is open to everyone throughout the metropolitan area, providing weekly Shabbat services, youth and adult education academy courses, social justice opportunities, outreach, and cultural Jewish programming. Join us in person for Shabbat services or come on Facebook Live. Go to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org. We welcome members and guests in our sanctuary in person. Call 520-276-5675 for information on our religious school for school-aged children or grandchildren, our fabulous Hebrew school, bar and bat mitzvah programs, Torah Tykes experience, confirmation and teen programs, all in a fun, relaxed setting with great Jewish learning. Go to BeitSimchaTucson.org to sign up. Beit Simcha's services, classes, and events are open to everyone. In person, Friday night and Saturday morning, you can come by going to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org, or emailing me, rabbi at beitsimchatusan.org, or join us each Friday night on our Facebook page. Shabbat evening celebration services are at 6.30 p.m. Saturday Shabbat morning services are at 10 a.m., preceded at 9 o'clock with Torah study, all with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, leading him. Our Facebook page is B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson, Beit Simcha Tucson. Our musical services are there. All of our Adult Education Academy classes are in person and on Zoom. You can access those by going to our website, BeitSimchaTucson.org. Our wonderful religious school is available in blended format, too. Some students live, some on Zoom. And coming up fast, a week from this Friday night, we'll be at the Tucson J, 
Rabbi Seth Farber will receive the Kohan Memorial Foundation Award for his contributions to Jewish unity. For more information about Beit Simcha to come to services, our great religious school and Torah Tykes programs, Barn Bot Mitzvah, Confirmation and High School programs, and rich array of Adult Education Academy courses live and on Zoom, and of course, all of our services in person and on Facebook, go to Beit Simcha Tucson.org, B-E-I-T-S-I-M-C-H-A Tucson.org or call 520-276-5675. That's 520-276-5675. BeitSimchaTucson.org. Please join me, Rabbi Sam Kohan, in the fastest-growing and most vital Jewish congregation in all of Arizona and its exciting beginning years. If you have a question, comment, compliment, or criticism, fetch Orokfell, please email us at 2JewishRadio18 at gmail.com or visit our website, 2JewishRadio.com. You can hear all past and present shows through the website, toojewishradio.com, streaming us from there or downloading us from the Apple iTunes Store, is very popular Jewish podcast, also on Spotify and Podbean. We are a top 10 podcast in North America, according to Moment Magazine. 200,000 downloads on Podbeam. Please post a rating, review to Jewish wherever you listen to our podcast. Those five-star comments certainly help. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation, known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. The most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of Southern Arizona, Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. And now it's time for an occasional recurring feature of Two Jewish, our most serene Zen Judaism segment, a classic haiku for Jews. Is one Nobel Prize so much to ask from a child after all I've done? That was our Zen Judaism segment, a koan, a koan for you, 
Haiku for Jews. We welcome our expert on the international Jewish scene, Tom Price. Good morning, Tom. Good morning, Rabbi. There are Jewish communities, of course, all around the world, your specialty, uh, and some of them are very well known here, and we've talked about a number of times. Some of them we, I don't think we've ever talked about. Um, important communities in, I don't know, call them obscure places, I mean, interesting places. One of them is um, poised kind of in the area of permanent battle, uh, permanent warfare, seems like, between um, two ethnic groups in a, a former Soviet republic. Let's talk about that a little bit. Okay, so what we're talking about here is the Caucasus, which is the stretch of land between the Caspian Sea and the Black Sea. And there are actually three independent countries there today. One is Georgia, one is Armenia, and one is Azerbaijan. And those three countries could not be more different from one another. They all have Jewish communities to different extents and with very different histories because each country is so different. So let me first address you know, just the tip of the iceberg, which is that both Georgia and Armenia are historically Christian countries. In fact, they Arme were... Armenia is one of the oldest Christian countries. I was right? going to say, they oh, were sorry. both yeah. the first countries to convert on a national basis to Christianity before the Roman Empire converted. Roman Empire converted in 323. The Armenians and Georgians converted in the 280s or the 290s, and Armenians and Georgians will never resolve their battle over which country's church is the oldest. <laughs> and I've seen people like shoot other people over this question. I shouldn't laugh. Being then. good question. Wow. Okay. Being good Christians. Yeah. You know, they okay. resolve things with gunfire. Jeez. But um they both have what are called technically autocephalous churches, which means they have their own head. They don't recognize the patriarch in Istanbul who's the head of all the Orthodox churches theoretically they don't recognize the Pope in Rome they have their own equivalents to the Vatican and their own head of church um, the third country the biggest and wealthiest country in the Caucasus is Azerbaijan which is predominantly Muslim and has Nonetheless, some of the oldest Jews around in the region, um, they have these so-called mountain Jews who live, not Ta surprisingly, Ta in the mountains. Right. Tots, T-A-T-S, and there are others also um, sort of living in the distant from Baku. Baku is a very cosmopolitan city. It's an oil boom town. It had Jews from all over the world. It had Persian Jews. It had... Ottoman Jews, it had Russian Jews, it had your straight-up Ashkenazic Jews. It was different. Um, when we talked recently about the difference between Ashkenazic Jewry and every other type of Jewry, to include Sephardic and Mizrahi and others, and we mentioned that Italy was its own story. It didn't fall neatly into either any of those categories. Georgia is also its own story. The Georgian Jewish community is probably as old as Christianity, if not older, and its Jews have their own cuisine and their own vernacular and their own rites and their own tunes. Um, the other two countries, there's more overlap with the rest of the Jewish world. And 
why Azerbaijan and Armenia are in this heated and protracted war over an area called Nagorno-Karabakh is something we'll get to next time. Thanks, Tom. Fascinating and a very interesting and unique uh, set of Jewish communities. We'll talk next week. I look forward to it. It's time now for our old Jewish joke of the week. Jewish humor your Bubby and Zadie knew, brought to you by Too Jewish as a public service. Six retired Jewish guys are playing poker in the condo clubhouse when Meyer loses $500 on a single hand, clutches his chest, and drops dead at the table. Finkelstein looks around and asks, So, who's going to tell his wife? They cut cards to decide. Goldberg gets the low card, has to carry the news. The men tell him, Be discreet, be gentle. Don't make a bad situation even worse than it already is. Discreet, says Goldberg. I'm the most discreet person you'll ever meet. Discretion is my middle name. Leave it to me. So Goldberg goes to Meyer's condo and knocks on the door. Meyer's wife answers through the screen and asks, What do you want? Goldberg declares, Mrs., I'm sorry to tell you, your husband just lost five hundred dollars on one hand in a poker game he's afraid he should come home tell him to drop dead yells the wife i'll go tell him says goldberg that was the old jewish joke of the week special feature of two jewish you should live and be well and now a word of torah This week, we continue with the truly greatest story ever told, the Exodus narrative of slavery, plagues, and liberation. As this week's portion of Vaera begins, the Israelites are in Egyptian slavery, and the mysterious figure of Moses has just returned to try to free them from bondage. In Vaera, God brings about a series of plagues that traumatize the Egyptians and bedevil the Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Blood, frogs, lice, wild beasts, boils, and cattle disease serially afflict the land and its inhabitants, or at least the non-Israelite inhabitants. In next week's portion of Bo, four more plagues come, hail, locusts, and darkness, all leading up to the climactic death scene of the slaying of the firstborn and the ultimate exodus, the great moment in which our ancestors were freed from slavery It's the model for narratives of deliverance and emancipation ever since. These plagues are interesting in and of themselves. There are three sets of three plagues each, increasing in severity and complexity, every one designed to prove the power of the true God and the impotence of the pagan gods of Egypt. The Nile River was the principal deity of Egypt, as well as the source of its life and livelihood. And so, for the first plague... God simply turns it to blood. There are frog gods in the Egyptian pantheon, and they are next turned into pests infesting homes and fields. The scarab is a sacred beetle to Egyptians, a symbol of the pharaoh's power, and insects are next used to torment the inhabitants. And so it goes. Sacred cows get diseases. The fertility of the holy land of Egypt itself is destroyed. Finally, even the great Ra, the solar disk of the sun itself, 
is blotted out for days. These plagues are a statement of theology. There is only one God. Those who adhere to other gods and use their own power to enslave other humans will be overthrown with power and majesty. The arrogant will be overcome. Freedom will be guaranteed, and justice through the true God will triumph. It's a message that still has resonance today, particularly, perhaps, over this Martin Luther King weekend. Whenever we come to believe that evil is destined to reign, that those who enslave others will rule, that the people who use their control for malign purposes are destined to flourish, we should reread this plague's narrative here in Exodus. For at heart, this is a universe created by God for good. When we increase justice, we are simply doing the work for which we all were made. When we come back in a moment on to Jewish, Jeremy Benami, the president of the dramatically growing organization J Street, will discuss how it works to connect Jews on campus to Israel in a complex and polarized environment. Find out just how when we return in a moment here on Two Jewish. We continue with our Two Jewish update on news of Jews around the world with commentary. The Genesis Prize, established to honor a single inspiring Jew with a lifetime of achievements, has been awarded this year to a nameless group whose work is ongoing, Jewish activists in war-ravaged Ukraine. The Genesis Prize Foundation said that the war in Ukraine required a change in the approach taken since creating the prize, known by some people as the Jewish Nobel Prize, about a decade ago. Recognizing the extraordinary nature of events dominating the past 11 months, the Genesis Prize Selection Committee has decided to depart from its usual custom of awarding the prize to a single Jewish individual, they said, and added, instead, the committee is elected to announce a collective award to Jewish activists and NGOs who were inspired by the brave citizens of Ukraine and their courageous president, Volodymyr Zelensky, and chose to act on their Jewish values by standing up for freedom, human dignity, and justice. The group is also not awarding the traditional million-dollar prize that recipients have donated to charity most of the time. Instead, it says it plans to continue to make grants to NGOs to alleviate the suffering in Ukraine, as we've done since the beginning of the war. These groups have included the JDC, Joint Distribution Committee, which has distributed emergency aid across Ukraine, United Hatzalah of Israel, which trained Ukrainians in emergency first aid, and Natal, an Israeli trauma response group. The goal of the Genesis Prize, its co-founder and board chair Stan Polovitz said, remains to stimulate Jewish giving by raising awareness of particular needs. Freedom is one of the most important values of the Jewish people. This is a country that's fighting for its freedom. It has a president who has shocked everyone by his resilience and courage. He said about Ukraine, we think the Jewish community worldwide needs to be supportive to the extent that it can. In going with the group prize, Genesis circumvented the potential pitfalls of honoring Zelensky himself. 
The Genesis Prize Foundation held Zelensky up as a Jewish hero, however, last October, when its co-founder and board member Natan Sharansky, the former Soviet dissident and the 2020 honoree of the Genesis Prize, visited him in Kiev or I guess Kiev, they call it now. Sharansky, who lives in Israel, has been a leading advocate for Israel to dedicate more resources to Ukraine. Honoring Zelensky, however, Ukraine's most prominent Jew, could have made an uncomfortable situation for the Genesis Prize's glitzy awards ceremony. In his efforts to secure more resources for Ukraine's armed forces, Zelensky has been openly critical of Israel for not being as forthcoming as he would like. The Genesis Prize is presented in Jerusalem. Genesis Prize has not had great luck recently, to be honest. Last year, the Israeli Knesset dissolved itself on the night of the Genesis ceremony when Pfizer CEO Albert Borlo was being honored for his great work on the COVID vaccines. Because of that, Israeli politicians did not come. And the changes to the selection process are not the first changes at Genesis caused by the war in Ukraine that began February 24th last year with the Russian invasion. The three Russian billionaires who helped start the prize stepped down from the board of the related Genesis Philanthropy Group last March after they were targeted by Western sanctions in response to the Russian invasion. Past recipients of the Genesis Prize include Michael Douglas, Natalie Portman, Steven Spielberg, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, Yitzchak Perlman, and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Almost all have donated the entire million dollars to charity. A revival of Parade, a musical about the 1915 lynching of Jewish factory manager Leo Frank, will arrive on Broadway this spring. Had a successful seven-performance trial run last November. Ben Platt, the Jewish Tony Award-winning actor who originated the title role in the Broadway hit Dear Evan Hansen, will star as Leo Frank. Michaela Diamond plays Frank's wife, Lucille. Both actors performed those roles in the show's New York City Center run, which got strong notices. With songs and a book written by Jason Robert Brown and Albert Urey, the musical opened on Broadway for a short run back in 1998. It won the Tony Awards for Best Book and Best Score, even though it was not a financial success back then. Parade centers around the real-life story of the Brooklyn-born Leo Frank, who managed a pencil factory in Atlanta, In 1913, the body of 13-year-old Mary Fagan was found in a cellar. Despite essentially no evidence, Frank was found guilty of her murder and sentenced to death. In 1915, when Frank's sentence was commuted to life in prison by the governor, he was kidnapped by an armed mob and lynched. The case, which has been called America's Dreyfus Affair, attracted rampant and sensationalized press and public response over a century ago. It reinvigorated the Ku Klux Klan and inspired the founding of the ADL, the Anti-Defamation League. And that's the news of Jews around the world. The stories we share last a lifetime and are passed down from generation to generation known for our compassionate commitment to the families we serve. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery has faithfully served the Tucson community and the Jewish community for over 100 years. We help thousands of families plan and carry out celebrations of loved ones in unique and special ways and assist them in sharing those lifetimes of stories meaningfully. 
the most beautiful and tranquil final resting place in all of southern Arizona. Evergreen's tall pines shade peaceful, grassy fields. You can count on Evergreen for superior service and the highest degree of integrity. Our informative, well-trained staff is here to assist you with a full range of on-site services. Call Evergreen, 520-888-7470, 520-888-7470. While we serve the whole community, our experience conducting Jewish funerals, Reform, Conservative, and Orthodox is second to none. We have sections dedicated to all religious faiths, can help you arrange for your future needs or your immediate ones. Whether you choose to hold a traditional funeral service or a completely individualized ceremony, either in person or online or both, our goal is to help you create a meaningful, personalized service based upon your unique needs in a place of reflection, tradition, and serenity. Evergreen Mortuary and Cemetery offers the best to the community and to you. Call 520-888-7470. To speak to a family advisor at Evergreen, call 520-888-7470. We welcome back to Two Jewish. Our guest this morning, Jeremy Ben-Ami, is the head of J Street, which has become an important force uh, in the Jewish world in America and perhaps even influential in Israel. Um, Jeremy, it seems to me that there is a kind of generational divide among American Jews where by and large, many, if not all, of course, older American Jews tend to be more focused on Israeli security. Younger American Jews don't have the same acceptance. Whatever Israel does is right. We'll just go along with it. Can you uh, elaborate on that a little bit? Sure. Well, I think there are important generational differences in the way that Jewish Americans relate to Israel. But I think the single most important uh, dividing line in the American Jewish community is one's level of religiosity. Uh, our polling and many other organizations polling, whether it's uh, AJC, ADL, the Jewish People Policy Institute, Jewish Electoral Institute, the wide range of polls find that Orthodox American Jews of any age, younger and older, uh, are much more conservative and much more aligned with the forces that have now taken uh, power in, in Israel uh, than the non-Orthodox part of the American Jewish community. About 10% of all Jewish Americans are Orthodox, but a much higher percentage, closer to 20% of younger Jewish Americans are Orthodox. And so in a slight bit of unexpected uh, data, uh, you actually see that younger Jewish Americans on the whole are actually a little bit more conservative than older Jewish Americans on these issues. But if you then subdivide uh, into the non-Orthodox and the Orthodox communities, what you'll find is that older non-Orthodox Jewish Americans are actually fairly aligned with younger non-Orthodox Jewish Americans. It's just that there are fewer uh, of them uh, at the younger ages. And so the data is a little bit different than the narrative that you might assume just watching, let's say, college campuses or watching, uh, you know, your families, et cetera. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, uh, I think the religiosity that is the bigger dividing line. That, as you noted, wasn't expected, right? Um, we've seen major changes in the way that uh, Jews practice and, and younger Jews, as you noted, some are more orthodox, 20 percent 
as opposed to what we've thought it was kind of a fading orthodox movement that's switched. It's the middle, the center that's kind of disappearing uh, or at least diminishing. On campus, um, tell us a little bit about how J Street operates and the challenges there. Sure, and I think you've put your finger on, you know, the biggest challenge for the American Jewish community, which is in that non-Orthodox Jewish community, which does amount to 80 to 90 percent of Jewish America, the younger generation is much less connected to the state of Israel. And the state of Israel is less a part of younger Jewish identity. Uh, it is very much a part, my generation that lives through the 67 war, lives through the and I was a kid, I mean, in 67 and in 73, but... Me too, by the way. I'm not that old, so, you know, I appreciate that. No, we're not that old, but we're, you know, certainly middle age doesn't even begin to describe it, right? Right, no. No, it <laughs> and, doesn't. Uh, so, you know, in our generation, there is a level of connectivity to Israel, and it's true, certainly, of our parents' generation, because of the Holocaust, because of 48, because of all of the history. Uh, I think that all of us see Israel as a core part of our identity, but our kids and our grandkids are not so much, right? They're firmly rooted here. It's no longer sort of the David versus Goliath story that we grew up on and that we could really identify with, and the sense of pride in Israel at, you know, when 15 years old, 25 years old, 30 years old, pushing back against all of its enemies, staking its claim, you know, establishing its security. That was the first three decades of Israel's history, but today Israel's the Goliath. Uh, Israel is the strongest military power in the region, if not one of the strongest in the world. And it's an occupying power that is, in fact, engaged in a systematic oppression of the people who they rule over who don't have full democratic rights. And that is very, very troubling for my kids' generation, for you know many of our peers and slightly older grandkids generation, uh, and it's just a different relationship. And so Israel itself is no longer as fundamental to the identity. And what J Street tries to do, J Street tries to provide a bridge to try to help this generation to find a way to relate to Israel, uh, to see that the problems there that are caused, let's say, by some of the people now taking power, as we discussed earlier in our conversation, and some of the things that they are doing, that that doesn't represent who we are as Jews, and actually to call out some of those behaviors and some of those actions and to stand up for justice, to stand up for an oppressed minority, to stand up for equality, those are Jewish values. And, and your Jewish connectivity to Israel can actually be established through your pro-Israel activism as you advocate for democracy, as you act, advocate for justice, you advocate for equality, that's a way to relate to Israel. And that's where J Street comes in. The debate on campuses is often between the Israel can do no right camp, right? The pro-Palestinian, pro-BDF, anti-Israel far left, and then the more established structures of our community, which say Israel can do no wrong, and Israel's always right. And that doesn't speak to this generation. And we fill in a gap in the middle between the Israel that was right and the Israel that was wrong camp and say, actually, Israel is a real human country. It does a lot of great things. It also has some problems. And the way to relate to Israel is to engage and try to help fight for the values you hold here. 
Jeremy, it has been difficult for those of us who believe that there, you know, you can't have permanent occupation. You're not going to expel the Arabs. The two-state solution seems like the only rational way to deal with the situation. To see the leadership of the Palestinians, first of all, with uh, Fatah, you know, a gerontocracy, clearly corrupt, not terribly effective. Hamas in Gaza, virulently anti-Israel, really anti-Semitic. Where do you see the, where does J Street see opportunities for, besides protesting unjust Israeli practices and policies, finding some way of coming to a treaty, some sort of organizational positivity in the region? Well, I think right now, unfortunately, it's a very, very sad and troubling reality. And anybody who cares about Israel should be very upset by what I'm about to say, which is that we are not about to have a two-state solution. Uh, You know, there is no road to a two-state solution right now. And part of that has to do, of course, with the Palestinian side and uh, the incapacity of the leadership and some of the ill intent of the leadership in Gaza and a whole host of factors on the Palestinian side. But the question for the Jewish community and the question for supporters of Israel isn't what is the other side doing, it's what are you doing, right? What are we doing? Right. What, what are the Jews in Israel doing? And what's happening right now is Israel's digging a very deep hole for itself. Uh, it is building a one-state reality. Uh, there's only one real state between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. That state has about 14 million people that live within its boundaries, and half of them are Jewish and half of them are not. And the half that are not don't have, many of them, several million of them have no political rights. And that's not a democracy. And so we've got a one-state reality now that is being created by the actions of the state of Israel. And the leadership of this new government is unfortunately going to keep digging that hole. And so right now, the question isn't whether or not there's a partner on the other side. The question is, if we want to get out of this hole, why don't we stop digging? That, the shovel with, that is digging the hole is in our hands, right? That has nothing to do with there being a Palestinian leadership. You do not need to engage in provocative actions like going to the Temple Mount, right. encouraging prayer on the Temple Mount. You don't need to demolish uh, Bedouin villages in the South Hebron Hills. You don't need to build settlements on private Palestinian land. None of those things advance security. They actually undercut security. And they dig the hole deeper. So I agree with you. The Palestinian leadership right now is a huge problem. And there's no path to two states today. And yeah. that's a problem. It's that's painful. not an answer. It's, that's a problem. It's, it's a kind of Israeli problem. I mean, I know everybody thinks about, well, there's nobody to deal with. Uh, and that's always what we say. And in this case, I agree. There just doesn't seem to be any clear path whatsoever. But... That's a problem for Israel because ultimately being a permanent occupying power and eventually a demographic problem, I mean, even Ariel Sharon saw that, is not, there's no end game there. It doesn't work out over 20 years or 10. And to my mind, that is a pro-Israel statement. What you have just said, that is the single most pro-Israel thing one can say right now is that if Israel is going to be a majority Jewish country that is a democracy, that's Jewish in character and lives up to the best of our 
values and ideals, this path is the wrong path, and we have to help and stand up and, and talk through so that people will hear why it is that the path needs to be changed. And we don't live there. American Jews don't live there. It's an Israeli decision. The voters have spoken. They're moving to the right. But it has real impact on Jewish Americans. And my kids at college, you know, your family and the people you talk to, they're being impacted in America by what's happening in Israel. And I think we have to establish what our views are and make our voice heard and clear. And that's a pro-Israel thing to do. In um, looking sort of at where we are right now, um, and I think, by the way, that statement, you know, they talk about security, but security does not mean provocative actions that lead to riots and greater terrorism, right? Um, the optimism that many of us shared during the Oslo process now seems antique. Um, what can American Jews do to make a difference in this process? Uh, we're a long way from there, and a lot of times we're told, well, just send money and show support. Talk to your Congress people to give more to Israel. What's J Street's approach? Well, you know, I do think American policy is a very important uh, force in shaping the future over there. The decisions have to be made by Israelis and by Palestinians, and you need partners on both sides. Right now, the Israeli government doesn't want two states, and the Palestinian leadership is incapable of delivering two states. So right now, that's not, you know, on the agenda. But American policy can push back against some of the steps that are uh, undercutting the potential of ever getting to two states. It can try to create uh, better people-to-people uh, -people relations through some of the programs that it funds. It can encourage encourage Israel to take positive steps in the right direction as part of the normalization process with some of its neighbors in the Gulf and in the other parts of the Arab world. There are things that American policy could be doing to keep the pathway open to a future negotiation and a future end of this conflict. And, and the approach that is taken by some of the pro-Israel groups is the United States should just be hands off and write the check and ask no questions. And we think that's not the best approach. That's not the right American policy approach. That's one thing we can do. I think a second thing we can do is encourage this conversation that you and I are having uh, to take place in Jewish community venues and on many more podcasts and radio shows, et cetera. Um, you know, I think that APAC and other groups should appear with J Street and lay out their vision, and we should lay out our vision, and we should have an open, robust debate and discussion about the future and about what makes sense for American policy and the American Jewish community. And those conversations are not happening enough, I don't think. And that's something that we can do that I think will be really healthy for the American Jewish community over the coming generation. Otherwise, I think we're going to see a large number of our younger generation walking away, not just from Israel, but from the Jewish community. Yeah, I mean, uh, Birthright is a great program, but it's not going to change the minds of all young Jews who are, I think, at least all non-Orthodox young Jews who seem to be moving strongly in this direction. Jeremy, thank you for a great visit here on Two Jewish. I feel like we go on for, oh, much more than 18 minutes. Um, where can people go to find out more about J Street and to find out more about you? Well, thanks so much. Uh, you know, it's always great to have these conversations. Our website is very easy. It's just J street.org and there you can find out all about us and uh, the work that we do 
You can see our principles and our mission and our policy positions and, and sign up for our email list. Keep up the good fight. <laughs> we appreciate Thank you. Thank you so much. When I appreciate come, the opportunity. Thank you. When we come back on Two Jewish, we're about next week's guest. Get a final musical play out. We are the soul of Tucson. We are your neighbors and friends. Our commitment to provide the very best relies on the finest products and services you, our community, has to offer. Together, we make Tucson thrive. When we win, you win. Casino del Sol, the soul of Tucson. Enterprise of the Pasquayaki tribe. Thanks for being here with us this morning on Too Jewish with me, Rabbi Sam Kohan. Join us next week. Our guest will be Rabbi Seth Farber, founder of E-Team, the crucial organization that helps Jews find their place in the complex religious situation of Israel. He is the 2022 winner of the Kohan Memorial Foundation Award for the unity of the Jewish people. And he'll be here in Tucson at Congregation Beit Simcha. Friday night, January 27th, we'll be meeting at the JCC that day. Don't miss him. Please join us at Beit Simcha every Friday night for services at 6.30 p.m., followed by an Onig Shabbat, Saturday morning too, 9 a.m. Torah study, 10 a.m. services, Torah reading in Kiddush, live in person and available on our Facebook page. Our playout this morning comes from Israeli singer Eyal Golan. His song, Sof Shel Kol Hasipur, the end of the whole story. Appropriate for this week's end of our show here on Two Jewish. My friends, have a Shavua Tov, a good week, a healthy week, and a week we pray profoundly of peace. <laughs> הלב שלי בוכה עכשיו כמו גשם ברחובות ולמה זה קל לפרק הכל כשקצת קשה בינינו ובלב שלי רוחות של סתיו ואיפה את בלילות עוד יום עובר ואת לא כאן נשבר בשקט כי לאן שלא הצל של אחות כאן זה סוף של כל סיפור איך יש לך לב לצאת עכשיו עם כל בעיה ספונסרד בי 2 ג'ויש רדיו פרוגרמס, טוסון, אריזונה